Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Welcome to Compliance Clarified, the financial services compliance podcast of Thomson Reuters. This is Series 6, Episode 3. I'm Randall Mickelson, North American Managing Editor of Regulatory Intelligence, and I'm here with Antonita Madonna, Insurance Correspondent in North America for Regulatory Intelligence. Hi, Antonita. Hi, Randall. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Shall we get right to it? Absolutely. Okay, we're here to talk about storms and insurance, and in particular, Hurricane Ian and its impact on the risk market and regulation in the United States and uh, with application to the world at large. Hurricane Ian in September killed at least 119 people and caused at least $50 billion in damage in Florida alone. Uh, It may be Florida's costliest storm ever, Uh, But it's only the latest in a series of increasingly severe storms, droughts, and wildfires that scientists say are consistent with the predicted effects of climate change. Such natural disasters have taxed the insurance industry, whose regulators have responded in a variety of ways in an effort to ensure that people can continue to be covered against catastrophic events. One lawyer involved in the industry uh, had uh, a dire assessment of the impact of Hurricane Ian. He said this may really be the death knell uh, to property insurance and business interruption insurance in Florida. He says, uh, with climate change, uh, you can't predict for certain, but it could happen every year. He said insurance companies uh, can handle big losses in an individual year, uh, but if it's year after year, that's not sustainable. Antonita, what has Hurricane Ian shown us that we didn't already know? So, Randall, that would differ vastly depending on whom you speak to. But what we now know, I think, is that several lapses over a period of time on the part of the state, insurers, and even to an extent federal agencies resulted in the damages from this hurricane ending up being more devastating than it may have otherwise been. We know Hurricane Ian destroyed areas along its path, lives were lost, and we all saw those apocalyptic images of roofs being blown over, cars and even houses floating in uh, flood waters caused by storm surge. Rather breathtaking images indeed. Absolutely. One month later, I think the impacted communities are worrying about the sheer amount of time it's going to take to rebuild. It could be several months, if not years. And here's where insurance could have really served better as a tool to aid the social and economic recovery. But that's if the Florida insurance market wasn't already so broken. So I think Hurricane Ian has really shown light on the problems that need urgent fixes in uh, in the state's uh, homeowners and flood insurance market. Why is that uh, Florida market so broken? And is it uh, in similar situations elsewhere in the United States? Yeah, I think the Gulf of Mexico region, the states in the near the Gulf would be um, a bit battered uh, in terms of uh, their insurance marketplace. Uh, But then we also have a situation on the West Coast, uh, California, and to a small extent, Washington State as well. But um, the issues in Florida are sort of uh, specific to that state. So firstly, nearly a dozen insurers operating in the state have gone out of business in the last year or so. Nearly all the large insurers have fled or severely restricted their underwriting in the state. 
smaller carriers continue to exist, but they're just sort of staying afloat until the next, uh, you know, storm threatens to drop, topple them over. The industry has blamed uh, fraudulent and excessive litigation for this. Um, while the state has implemented some reforms, it's nearly not as enough to address the level of crisis that they are in. But um, I think this has to be addressed sooner than later because not just for the industry, it's probably a larger problem for the state regulator to resolve because insurance availability is threatened. And this is in a state where coverage is always several times more expensive than the national average. So Florida has its own insurance agency, doesn't it, or insurance provider? It does. It does. It has an insurer of last resort, Citizens uh, Property Insurance Corp. And so it's not like insurance is not available. And that brings us to the last problem and probably the biggest problem that regulators and the industry needs to look at. And that's low insurance uptake. Citizens offers very competitive prices to the rest of the market because their price hikes Citizens is the Florida um, state agency, yeah. Yes, insurer of last resort. And um, they operate, of course, in the residual market. So the intention is that if you don't get a good, well-priced insurance option in the private market, you then go to citizens. But because citizens is priced so low compared to the rest of the marketplace, it tends to attract the bulk of uh, the population and um, looking for insurance, especially in high-risk areas. That's the problem there. Even though citizens exist, uh, the number of people buying insurance in Florida is really small. <laughs> Ironic, I know. Well, why is that? Why? Why? You'd think, I mean, we all sit here and see all the storms that hit the state every year and other problems. Why aren't they uh, buying more insurance? Right. But when the sun is shining and things are bright, it's just human nature to assume the worst is not going to happen to you. Um, so, for example, despite over 90 percent of the state being at risk of being hit by a flood, only, I think, 10 uh, percent of the state has actual flood insurance, either from the NFIB or from the private flood market. And this, by the way, is higher than the average, the, re the rest of the state's clock. So homeowners can insure their houses against fire and theft and wind damage and everything else, but they've got to buy flood insurance separately, right? But what, you know, why is that? What's the structure there? Yes, Randall. So that's part of the way insurance coverage is divided in the United States. It's kind of split by peril and not by type of disaster. So consumers have to buy a homeowner's insurance policy, but that doesn't cover flooding or earthquakes or sometimes maybe even a wildfire or wind damages, depending on which part of the country you live in. And that might be a problem for, you know, regulators and uh, federal authorities to consider going forward, especially as um, disasters these days are hurricanes, for example, are not only causing wind damage, but uh, historic storm surge is causing more uh, destruction as a result of flooding. And as federal and state uh, authorities sort of come together to uh, reimagine or reform the current uh, insurance situation there. Um, I think they, there may be some sort of reimagining required. If your house has been hit by Hurricane Ian, how do you sort out the difference between uh, wind damage and flood damage and how do insurers deal with that? Well, there are adjusters for that. Insurers have adjusters go out, uh, specifically uh, personally survey these properties, assess whether damage has been caused, uh, you know, from the ground upward or to the roof, for instance. That would be clearly a case of wind. But um, it is hard. 
most of the litigation, most of the problems um, that surface after um, a storm of this magnitude is just insurers saying this was caused by something that's not covered by a policy and policyholders saying, no, I bought homeowners insurance and you have to cover it. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's very sad also that about 40% of homeowners insurance policy holders, according to a survey uh, by III, that's the Insurance Information Institute, uh, found that uh, policyholders buying homeowners insurance mistakenly believe that their policy covers flood and every other peril. That could be particularly you know, devastating to find out that your claim was not covered after a storm of this sort. It sounds like there's a communication gap there then, too, when people are buying policies. They don't know what they're getting there. I think if you ask for exclusions, uh, your insurance broker or agent will clearly tell you that. But it's just not easy for the layperson to compute. You don't always know the risk that you need to insure against. So there is a massive communication failure going on here. Private insurers are responding to some of this by sort of bundling coverage. So if you are calling in for a quote for homeowners insurance, they will have one of their private flood insurance partners bundle a quote for flood insurance in your policy. So you Mm -hmm. can't sue them later uh, saying you weren't told that flood wouldn't be covered. But uh, the NFIB, on the other hand, that's the federal program, is less outspoken with its communication, its outreach is severely lacking, and that's one of the major criticisms it faces. Is it correct it's it's federal flood insurance is required in some designated areas that are shown on a map to be flood zones, but then it's optional outside those flood zones? Yes, so the FEMA has its own flood maps, uh, which are notoriously outdated. Uh, it is working on updating it, but of course, um, that is a step-by-step process. Uh, those in a flood zone would be required by their mortgage lender uh, to purchase flood insurance. And uh, that is the number one reason for <laughs> people to buy flood insurance in these areas. If you don't have a mortgage, you probably go without um, insurance as well. Okay. Um, but yes. I understand Ian hit a lot of areas that weren't in those maps. And so people people weren't buying flood insurance uh, there. Now, I know uh, Florida has encouraged insurers to settle claims, you know, very rapidly. How able are they to do that? Can they can they act with the speed that the state is insisting on? So one thing there, Florida, so Hurricane Ian did hit parts that were part of the flood map, but even in those areas, flood insurance uptake was really low, especially in central Florida, where it was, I believe, two to four percent. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, dangerously low to um, just sort of reside in that space. But yeah, in terms of paying out claims, I think we now know that claims from storm surge were higher than claims from wind damage. Now claims from flooding, of course, uh, you know, caused by storm surge goes under the NFIP tab. So private insurers are not going to have a problem paying that out. Also, I think compared to initial estimates, Insurers have now found that claims are coming in slower than expected. So that way they are, I think there are one or two who have voluntarily said that they are going to go out of the market, UPC being one. Uh, But um, otherwise, the industry is broadly well placed to cover these claims. And what is that going out of the market? 
UPC, an insur- a small insurer in Florida, has said they're going to leave the state just because of these repeated storms, um, mm-hmm. the litigation environment there. Uh, but I want to highlight, Randall, that the overall situation where we say the industry looks like it's well-placed to pay out the claims from Ian um, show that if there might be another storm this year, I mean, that that's a whole different situation. And secondly, they're able to pay out these claims partly because the damages were more attributable to flood damage or people in these areas just did not have insurance. And that's not a very good place to be in. The bill's going to get passed on to FEMA and, you know, disaster insurance programs and things like that. FEMA is the Federal Emergency Management Agency that has emergency assistance programs and so forth, right? Right. How does the response in Florida to the insurance oversight and requirements of insurers with with relation to the Hurricane Ian, how does that compare with other states uh, like, uh, you know, California is hit by wildfires that also cause a lot of damage. Is there a difference between how those states approach uh, requiring insurers to to deal with catastrophes and, and to deal with the risk of catastrophes? Well, California wields a bit of a heavier hand uh, on insurers. They are under strict moratoriums uh, uh, on non-renewals, cancellations of policies, um, etc. for sometimes a month or even a year following an event. And that is in part, um, when I speak to regulators, they tell me that that is in part to you know, sort of control the market reaction because when there is an adverse event, insurers' first reaction is to flee and then think later and, you know, then ent- re-enter the marketplace. And that sort of destabilizes coverage in that mm, area. Mm. So California has much longer moratoriums, but that just, you know, keeps insurers for that period of time that they're forced to stay. And then they sort of escape <laughs> whenever they get a window of opportunity. Um, ah, okay. Florida took on a similar approach after Hurricane Ian, but their moratorium was about a month and a half, I believe, till until the end of November. So it's slightly more lenient than we we don't know yet who's going to flee the Florida market. Oh, yeah, we probably do not until. I understand too. In in California, insurers now have to give discounts uh, for policyholders that take uh, measures to to uh, prevent wildfires. How is that working out? Is there any feel for the impact of that program? The order only came through this month from uh, the California's insurance commissioner, Ricardo Lara. Um, Mm -hmm. So California is a state where, you know, wildfires are constantly hitting. It's just causing unimaginable damage. And uh, insurers obviously do not want to cover this risk where, you know, they know for certain they're going to have a much higher risk reward ratio. Having said that, California has been making attempts to sort of uh, bring about rate stabilization, tie rates to risk, giving insurers the rates they need to sort of take on this additional risk in the market. Insurers, I must mention, have already started giving discounts to uh, policyholders who had taken on efforts to sort of fireproof their homes in ways that would reduce their risk scores. Mm-hmm. But this the, the, the recent order that came in this month from um, the California Department of Insurance sort of seeks to make that mandatory. 
Okay, but they were they were doing that before, even without regulation. Yeah. Yes, a small percentage. Yes, okay. it is also very costly to implement these measures. Some of these fireproofing, uh, you know. Uh, updates to the house and cost tens of thousands of dollars. So the department is just trying to make sure that, uh, you know, policyholders try and get their uh, worth, uh, you know, don't have to pay several hundreds in uh, premiums in addition to all this cost they're putting in. But having said that, the, the commissioner is clearly saying all his actions are guided by climate change, varying models, and, you know, that He's just determined to help communities better prepare for increasing climate risk. How well placed is the industry, insurance industry, to face climate change? Well, the industry has, in a way, protected itself from, um, you know, this outsized risk. Um, especially, they've been exiting high-risk areas. They've been very, very cautious about where they stay and operate. Wherever they remain, they practice very strict underwriting discipline. Um, sometimes they personally get involved in mitigation efforts. Mm. For instance, in California, they might come and survey your property and, you know, take on brush clearance efforts, things like that. They, they will basically evaluate risk to your property and eliminate it, if possible, at their own cost. So it's a real feet-on-the-ground approach there. It is, yeah. Sometimes they even work with local authorities in high-risk areas to take steps or implement technology that can warn of, for example, high risks, um, higher level of flooding or threat of flooding, and uh, you know, trigger other measures that can mitigate risk that are not within the insurer's control. But if they can alert local authorities to it well in advance, then maybe they could take some steps. Um, so to a certain extent, they're also warning people about, you know, the rising level of risk they face and the higher costs of rebuilding. Sometimes, like I told you, they bundle quotes from partners for coverage of other perils that their homeowner's policy does not cover. But in the larger scheme of things, I think they're warning about the growing risk from climate change, trying to work with regulators to try tie risk uh, to rates and um, support and encourage mitigation efforts, especially updating building codes, uh, brush clearance, things like that. That's interesting. In um, in Florida, I'm going to go back to Florida for a minute. Mm-hmm. The uh, you know the citizens' uh, state insurer of last resort obviously faces a lot of challenges in that role. How how are they dealing with climate change, and and what what do they see as the uh, solution? Right. So citizens in Florida is disproportionately burdened by a growing number of uh, policyholders. Many would say it was not prepared to handle in the first place, uh, but is just taking on because they have to. Uh, there were questions about whether citizens would even be able to pay out claims from the storm, but then they came out and said um they, they would be able to handle a uh, claim from Ian and maybe even another storm this year, depending on its size. Of course, citizens being a part of a state agency has access to other tools to sort of raise capital to pay out claims in such an instance. So I think climate risk impacts them a little less. But when I did speak to the CEO, uh, Barry Gilway, about it, he spoke about, he, he said he has interacted with climate change models. He said, they were just that, another model with guesstimates from scientists to consider. So he didn't trust the, the climate change estimates. Yeah. Well, he said he doesn't trust it as much, just as much as he doesn't trust any other estimate. And he said the only truth about models is that they're all wrong. So 
but it, does he see other solutions to minimizing the financial risk to, to the, that firm and insurers in general? Yeah, so to citizens, he uh, so he is a big advocate of, again, risk proportionate rates being charged to the market. He says uh, Florida citizens should follow the route uh, Louisiana took with its own insurer of last resort, also named citizens. Um, it's called Louisiana citizens, actually. Louisiana requires its insurer of last resort to price its policies about uh, 5 to 10 percent, I believe above the market average so that way they do get a bulk of the policies in areas where private insurers are cautious and reluctant to offer coverage but Mm -hmm. they don't get policies just because they are providing a more attractive rate which is the case with florida citizens what about the federal government? What kind of role are they taking? I know the, the state regulators are the main overseers of the insurance industry, but, but the, the U.S. Treasury now is asking insurers for information about how they assess the risks of climate change and so forth. Um, what kind of federal role do you see now and in the future? For the industry, it's beginning to matter less about what each state is doing uh, because Uh, The U.S. Treasury has now proposed a new rule to collect zip code level current and historical underwriting data from insurers. They want to fix inequities in insurance uptake uh, access. And um, this is the first major step to involve insurers in their efforts to prepare for the impact of climate change. But I think this is only going to increase going forward. Okay, so they'll get the information and then with that develop some some regulations to apply across the industry. Well, that part they have not specified yet. Right Right, now, it's still at the proposal stage, but um, I think it would be fair to assume uh, some action would come off uh, this data that they're attempting to collect. Okay, now we've been talking about storm risk and climate change, but the I, I noticed a report from Insurer AXA and the, the Ipsos Research Agency that in the top risks for 2023, in addition to climate change, were cli- climate um, or were cybersecurity and political instability around the world. Those seem like pretty amorphous and, and new risks. Uh, what is the industry and government doing about addressing all, all of those new style emerging risks? Right. So that report from AXA points out that these risks, well, these risks have been lurking among risks that would uh, feature in an insurer's day-to-day course of business. But uh, I think for 2023, it has gained more prominence, especially because climate risk for the first time has come to the top across all regions. And when it's followed by cyber and geopolitical instability, what AXA and Ipsos were trying to say in the report is that they feel this whole Russia's invasion of Ukraine has set forth a chain of events leading to a lot of food and energy insecurity in parts of the world, Mm -hmm. maybe all around the world. And that would make it more difficult for uh, nations to sort of address climate risk. So obviously, when you are trying to address climate change by moving away from fossil fuels, and then you have cities 
countries, communities um, running out of oil and gas, you know, or threatening, being threatened to reach a state where they run out of oil and gas to run their operations. That is a situation where, well, it certainly doesn't help the case uh, to move towards greener sources of energy as easily. But yeah, I think that's what the report was trying to point out. And it, it sounds like the, the insurance industry in general is, is facing a new era of risk and the regulators overseeing it have some real challenges to keep insurance accessible to all and, and accurate. And um, uh, it's a lot on their plate in the coming years. There is. First, uh, of course, they need to um, get to a consensus on uh, where they stand on climate, uh, these increasing number of disasters, severity, uh, things like that. And like I mentioned, the problem with low insurance uptake, that's something that has to be addressed at the soonest. Well, okay, we'll leave it at that. Um, Thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week with more from Compliance Clarified podcast. Compliance Clarified a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.